From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll learn how investors are affecting real estate in Milwaukee and get some tips for prospective home buyers. Then we'll explore efforts by Republicans to impeach State Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasewicz before she's even heard a case. When I talk to people who've been around for a long time, I kind of get this sense of a feeling of the erosion of the guardrails we used to have. We'll tell you about the next steps for coming up with a long-term plan for the domes. Nobody wants to hear that there's going to be more years of planning. Hopefully this doesn't take more years, but planning is the right vehicle to do engagement and vet these ideas with the community, and that's likely the next step. Plus, bring you a new Sounds Like Milwaukee, where residents share their favorite sounds in the city. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Wisconsin recently topped a list of states where investors are interested in buying properties. And if you've tried to buy a home over the last few years, that probably doesn't surprise you. The market is saturated with people looking for homes, while the number of homes has failed to increase with demand. Add in mounting inflation and this increase in companies buying up single-family homes for investors. And you have a market that Rob Staffsling describes as the worst he's ever seen. Staffsling is the director of single-family lending at WIDA, the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority, which helps people buy homes by teaching them how the process works and how to finance it. Staffsling joins me now to talk about what the housing market looks like for home buyers. Rob, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So as you look at the landscape right now for first-time home buyers, how would you say things have changed in really the last decade, but in your time in this work? Sure. I have been doing this for almost 30 years. And as you say, the, the landscape has changed drastically when you think about, you know, what a house costs. I think that's where you have to almost start the conversation where, say, our parents talk about, well, gosh, back in the 70s, you know, I had an interest rate of 14%, but maybe the house cost $10,000, you know, so it's a different experience for them. And so now uh, we see uh, the increase just over the last 10 years, even, well, and maybe even 15 years, because think about 2008 when we had, you know, the recession and we had plummeting house prices and, you know, subdivisions that were largely empty because the builders were struggling to sell them uh, in the market where people were literally foreclosures were uh, just such a common piece of the uh, landscape. And so now fast forward and there's no housing. I mean, it is literally such a different environment today for somebody to try to become a homeowner, not even for the first time home buyer, but definitely when you talk about the education process, when you talk about budget and you talk about, you know, maybe what somebody has to save up for a down payment. And, and now we have programs uh, that you can buy a house with no down payment. Uh, we have down payment assistance and uh, conventional loan that uh, we can, we can loan at a high loan to value. So people can become homeowners, but the reality is there's just no houses. It's a struggle. And so when you talk about what it looks like to be a homeowner today, somebody has to be very patient and maybe very flexible as they look at what they think their dream home would be or what their minimum expectations are. That might be quite a gap, but it's really difficult to, to buy a house these days. 
I, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with where they're going, you know, we put in an offer for the house and there were 10, 12. Uh, in my situation, there was once, I believe, over 20 bids for a home I was looking at. And when you have these really ultra competitive environments, as you say, people have to really curtail their expectations. There's a variety of things that people are, are saying, well, I guess I'll maybe look at this neighborhood. I'll maybe look at this space. What are the kinds of frustrations that you're hearing from people who you work with? The most common is, is just what you spoke to, is the whole idea of they're up against 10, 15, sometimes into the 20s of people who are trying to buy the exact house that they want to buy. And to the point where you talk about people might say, you know, I'm not even really worried about so much what the house looks like. I want to be in this neighborhood. Uh, now, if they can be a little more flexible and they say, okay, I don't necessarily need to be in this neighborhood, but I have to have at least three bedrooms or I have to have at least two bathrooms or and then they might have to be more flexible just because of budget constraints in terms of where they live and have to move further away. That creates all sorts of different different issues as it relates to how long does it take them to get to work? Do they have remote work opportunities? Uh, you know, the transportation issues for people who might have one car in their household versus two cars. And I mean, there's all sorts of challenges for people who don't live close to work. As a, for instance, my daughter doesn't drive, so she has to think about how is she going to get to work and uh, whether it's Uber or public transportation. And I think uh, the challenges around not only, you know, the how you get to work, but then, you know, uh, these neighborhoods that are close to workplaces. These are all the, you know, I, I, I put down some talking points as it relates to the challenges around people trying to buy houses these days. And uh, it's, it's, I've never seen it in the 30 years that I've been doing this, how many different hurdles there are for people to become homeowners. One of the things that we encountered personally with a home that we were looking at and that a lot of people have encountered is we weren't just bidding against other people. We were bidding against companies. There were companies that were looking at these single family homes. And uh, a recent report actually found Wisconsin is on top of the list of places where people are looking for investment properties. Have you seen this uh, in, in our market? We have. And it's definitely when you talk about the barriers to becoming a homeowner, not only are you going up against uh, your peers, but then investors who want to scoop up these houses and rent them out. They have a lot of capital to be able to accomplish this. And they can maybe buy those fixer-upper opportunities that, you know, back in the day, a first-time homebuyer might buy a house at you know, doesn't have the best carpet or needs some paint or, uh, you know, windows or, you know, something that, you know, they could maybe either do inexpensively or uh, do themselves. But now these investors are scooping up these houses and not only a house, sometimes blocks of houses, you know, neighborhoods where they're uh, going in and trying to scoop up large uh, numbers of homes and then fixing them up and renting them out and maybe not even fixing them up that much. And so it is definitely something that we've seen. Now, on the other side of the coin, we have seen many people become homeowners. I mean, as a, for instance, just in the last two months, we have seen uh, many people become homeowners uh, here at WIDA. We've funded over, almost 500 loans just in July and August for almost $100 million just here in Wisconsin. So there are still people buying homes for sure uh, and becoming first-time homebuyers. But uh, to your point, it is a challenge when you're up against not only your peers, but investors. 
When it comes to investors and these corporate interests, what does it mean for people, families, uh, when they're looking to buy a home? As you said, these are often well-funded groups. One of the things that also seems to become an issue is that they can waive things. Uh, so most of the time you're going to get your home inspected. You're going to get, um, you know, may- maybe you need to uh, do it on contingency. So you're buying this home, but you also need to sell your home. What are some of the benefits that a corporation has that the average person doesn't? You know, that, that's a great question. Off the top of my head, I would say the biggest thing they have going for them is the capital time where they can maybe move fast and uh, they have cash and they can get it wrong a little bit where, let's say my daughter was out shopping for a house and she wanted to think about it because it's a big decision. It's the biggest purchase that most people are going to make. And she's thinking about it. Well, she doesn't have time to think about it because other people are moving fast. They understand the market. They swoop in there. They put in a cash offer. They don't need an inspection to your point. They don't need an appraisal if they're paying cash. Where if it was my daughter, I would want her to have an inspection to make sure she's getting safe and stable housing to make sure that, you know, there's no issues with the foundation and it has a good roof and there's no hidden surprises. Well, in that scenario, somebody who's a large corporation and wants to just buy it, they don't have to think about that as much. And so, you know, there's definitely uh challenges for people when you think about what it even looked like maybe five years ago for people who could not only think about it, bring their parents to take a look at it with them, have it inspected, ask the sellers to make uh, some improvements to that home. If there's something cracking the foundation, roof that needs to be done, there used to be a lot more give and take in in the buying and selling process, where now it's a seller's market. And very often there are no inspections and very often cash buyers do get preferential treatment. So it's definitely a challenge. Now, we'll, of course, get into how WIDA helps uh, first-time homebuyers, homebuyers in general. But before we talk about that, what is some of the advice you find yourself giving to people that you've tailored to the kind of unique market we're seeing right now? You know, so WIDA is a provider of home loans to lenders around Wisconsin. And so I mean, ultimately, and this doesn't sound like uh, the best advice, but it's patience. It's being thoughtful about what a home is going to be to you, not only for your budget, but to the point you made about a neighborhood. How does it function in your everyday life? Because people can get a little skewed by, well, I found this amazing house. And sure, it's 40 minutes out of town, but uh, I don't mind the drive and and, and we'll, we'll, we'll make it work. Well, then you find yourself in a position where, you know, somebody's caught in traffic, they spend two hours in their car. Um, There's the cost of, you know, gas in the car itself and parking. And um, so there's these sort of unintended consequences of trying to maybe be too flexible. And I feel like our lenders do a really nice job of uh, giving people good advice and coaching around what it means to be a homeowner, uh, the true costs of being a homeowner, because a lot of people are renters who are going into becoming a homeowner. And uh, you have to go in eyes wide open in terms of what it really costs to be a homeowner. And, um, uh, but patience, I mean, in this marketplace, and I mean, as much as I talk about the investor piece being a challenge, it's almost always where a seller truly wants to sell their house to a person who's going to love their house. I mean, there's a lot of that. And maybe that's a Wisconsin Midwest sort of (laughs) mentality, but truly, I mean, I sold uh, my house two years ago 
And these people took a picture of their kids underneath a trellis uh, of these uh, roses that we had. And they said, we hope this is our future home. And, you know, we had like 15 offers, but the picture of those kids under the trellis, when all things were pretty similar in terms of, you know, the sale price, <laughs> that did a lot for us. And if some corporation was giving us a little bit more money, that wouldn't have, you know, skewed our decision. Uh, so I think it still is a personal process. For sure. Those love letters can, uh, oh, man. can really... <laughs> <laughs> they get you. <laughs> uh, as you mentioned, WIDA does, you know, coaching with home buyers. What are some of the other ways that WIDA works with home buyers to uh, get them prepared to buy a home, but then, yeah, ultimately get a house? So we uh, have a partnership with the Federal Home Loan Bank where we are financing some of the uh, local homebuyer counselors here in Wisconsin. There's there's nine of them that are actually participating. And so we, in conjunction with these housing counseling institutions, are you know creating uh, more opportunity for people to get home buying counseling. And people start at such different places when they're talking about becoming homeowners. Um, there are some people who just think, oh, I could never be a homeowner. Nobody in my family's ever owned a home. We've always rented. And there's some people who they've thought about it their whole life and they've saved up money and they just haven't found just the right house. And, and they go into these counseling sessions really just to verify what they probably already know. And so we support those activities as well as, as I said, we go to, to lender events uh, as, as a WIDA uh, sponsor and we present different things around budgets, what it means to be a homeowner, sample uh, payments so that people have a sense of what it might look like when you're paying your taxes and your insurance and your principal and interest. And so I think the education part is really important so that people uh, are set up for success becoming homeowners. All right. Well, Rob, thank you so much for speaking with me today and sharing so much of your work. Well, it's my pleasure. Rob Staffsling is the director of Single Family Lending at WIDA, the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Ayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hello, J.R., welcome back to Capital Notes. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's dive into some of the big news from last week. The state Democratic Party announced a $4 million effort to target GOP lawmakers over their threats to impeach now Justice Janet Protasiewicz, who was backed by liberals in the election. Can you give a short rehash of the original calls for impeachment? So go back to the campaign and Protasiewicz talked about how she believed the maps we have now for legislative districts are rigged, in her words. She also received about $10 million from the state Democratic Party in support for her bid for the Supreme Court. Fast forward now, Republicans have asked her to recuse herself from two additional lawsuits. Uh, the court has not said it's going to take the cases yet. which has asked uh, the parties, do you think I should be able to stay on? Those kinds of things. But Republicans have said, if she hears these cases, they believe that's an impeachable offense. Now, not all of them, 
But Robin Voss, the Assembly Speaker, has been talking openly about if she hears these cases, he thinks that would be a violation of her oath of office and that Republicans may impeach her. Now, if you look real closely at his comments, when Voss talks about this, he'll say things like, he's an optimist, he hopes she'll do the right thing, in his words, and step off the case. If she does not, we'll have to do an analysis and then consider impeachment. So I'm not sure that Republicans are really gung-ho about this idea of trying to remove her. In fact, talking to a number of Republicans in both houses, they are really kind of wary of the idea of trying to impeach somebody who was just elected by 11 points. So that's percolating. And now you have the Democratic Party and its allies saying, hey, we're gearing up for this fight, essentially. We're going to put $4 million into pressuring Republicans not to impeach which Now, in my calls over the past few days about this effort, I've kind of asked like what they think the impact of this is. And on the one hand, if you're Ben Wicklow, state party chair for Democrats, you kind of have to prepare for this, right? Like you can't sit by idly as Republicans gear up to possibly impeach Protosewicz and not do anything. And so by doing this, you are kind of making some noise, getting some attention on the issue. And oh, by the way, we're all starting to raise money. And this probably is going to be a very good fundraiser for Democrats in general, including the groups they work with. They're all getting organized right now for 2024 through this. At the same time, if you're a Republican who is worried about losing your seat because it might get redrawn through new maps, how is this money going to really pressure you? Because you've got nothing to lose, right? So I'm not sure if this money will really change minds of Republicans. Also, if you're Robin Voss, and again, for my conversations, I don't think Republicans really want to move forward with impeachment. But if you're Voss, you're probably looking for what's my kind of alternative? What's my escape route from this, this situation? Does this make it more or less likely that he is going to move forward with this? But are you boxing him in somewhat? Because there's now an expectation from some in the, the base for Republicans that this is going to happen. I'm not sure, again, not sure they Republicans really want it to happen, but some of the base are expecting it. So there's good and bad with this money, but I also don't think that Democrats had a choice but to get prepared for this fight. Well, this seems, again, this seems really extenuating circumstances. There have been impeachment threats against a sitting state Supreme Court justice before this justice has even heard a case or done anything. You know, she's probably, I don't know if she's even ever written a decision at this point. And then there's this Democratic campaign against impeachment. Is this sort of unchartered territory that people are wading into that's never been seen before statewide or nationally? When I talk to people who've been around for a long time, I kind of get this sense of a feeling of the erosion of the guardrails we used to have, right? Like there was kind of this sense of this is how things are done. Now, don't forget, the reason we're talking about impeachment is because Republicans have such large majorities in both houses. They have the two-thirds votes the two-thirds majority in the Senate that would be needed to remove Protestant if she was impeached. I've talked to enough Senate Republicans to know that they don't have the votes, the 20 votes they need to remove her. Um, but we're in kind of uncharted territory because we've seen so many things change over the years where what we thought, what once thought wasn't possible has become possible. I mean, think about the last dozen years ago in Wisconsin politics. Act 10 and the mass protest at the state capitol. You know, the lame duck session in 2018, Republicans changed basically the rules of how things work with the governor and uh, the attorney general right before Democrats took over. 
the state Supreme Court with this new liberal majority right away in August was changing how things operate. We're just, things are just done differently. And then look nationally at this kind of, you know, push to impeach Joe Biden and the charges against Donald Trump, like all these things that if you asked me 15 years ago, I thought they'd ever happen. I would have told you, no way. That's crazy talk. But things have changed. This is all, remember, politics is about power, getting power and keeping power. And for Republicans, you know, you're facing this real real scenario in which you could lose your stolid grip on the state capitol in both houses if new maps are in place. So what are your options? Um, what do you do? And this has become what they talked about. Again, it's it's not something I would envision several years ago happening, but that's where we're at these days. Well, to impeach Justice Protosewitz, the Republicans would need a simple majority in the in the assembly, correct? And then they would need two thirds majority in the state Senate. Do you, and you just said that the GOP doesn't have the votes, according to the people that you've talked to. Do you anticipate that that could change as time goes on, and that there would be any political blowback for a decision such as that? Anything is possible. They could always change their minds. Also, don't forget that under the state constitution. Once you are impeached as a judge or a justice, you can't exercise your position until the Senate trial is over and you're either removed or you are remain on the court. So if there's a vote in the assembly, in theory, they don't have to remove her in the Senate. They would just let her sit for an undetermined amount of time and not be able to participate in cases that leave the court 3-3 between conservatives and liberals, and that's where we'd be. Now, there's all kinds of like what if scenarios. So, okay, Republicans go that route. They try to sideline her indefinitely. Well, Democrats think, hey, she could resign. And guess who appoints a replacement? Tony Evers. He could just appoint Protosewicz, the same exact spot. He could pick somebody else. Restore that 4-3 liberal majority. There's all kinds of like scenarios of what if. But again, this is not the way things are not supposed to work by government, right? It's it's uh, just such a, a, a unique situation and a time in Wisconsin politics. How much of this can you attribute to the fact that the maps in 2010 were significantly gerrymandered to favor Republicans? So remember, those maps are drawn in 2011 by Republicans. The Supreme Court of Wisconsin, in its last run of redistricting lawsuits, so you have to take a least change approach. And so that meant the maps we have in place now are really based on those maps that are a dozen years old. Um, they are very, very favorable to Republicans, and they very much um, have shielded them from Democratic waves or good years for Democrats. They are really in a good spot with these. If these maps were to go away, it'd be a different story. Now, we don't know what the court would do if it did take up redistricting and issued a ruling. Also, don't forget, um, I've talked to a number of people about this issue, and I'm kind of a, a dork about redistricting. I could draw you a map in the Senate that's a 50-50 map um, that would be competitive and could go back and forth between Democrats and Republicans. Unless you draw a Democratic gerrymander, you can't do the same in the Assembly. It's because it is true that Democrats are concentrated in more urban areas, not just in Madison and, and Milwaukee, but you know, Green Bay, Eau Claire, you know, La Crosse. Territorially, they are kind of compacted at times. You would have to draw districts like Treat Madison like a, like a, a bicycle wheel, right? You'd have spokes coming out of Madison, of downtown Madison, out and into the the counties to try and you know spread out Democrats. You just couldn't do it. So um, these maps, even if they're ever drawn, 
you're probably going to have a Republican majority in the assembly unless you have a big wave year. The Senate could go back and forth, but these are really good maps right now for Republicans. Whether they're on right now, they are no toys about it. They are good for Republicans, and they're drawn that way. Right. I mean, you wouldn't even be considering a two-thirds majority in the state Senate for Republicans if the maps were different. Most likely not. You know, I mean, it depends on what foundation you use to draw them. Obviously, Democrats are arguing for a quote-unquote fair map. The word fair is in the eye of the beholder, right? Like, what is fair? They argue that there should be a political component to it. Like, we're a 50-50 state. The map should reflect that balance. Republicans counter that that's not in the Constitution. It's about compactness and communities of interest and other things. So, you know, it's it's an open question how those maps would look if they were redrawn. But it's hard to imagine a scenario in which these maps were worse for Democrats because Republicans have drawn them to maximize their potential for winning seats. And let's be honest, redistricting is the most partisan thing, politically partisan thing you can do in the Capitol that's legal, right? You can't raise money from your camp- from your state office or engage in campaigning, but you can draw maps that give you a big campaign advantage. And if Democrats had the same opportunity, they would do the same thing. That's It's part of what happens across the country. Look at New York and Illinois with the maps drawn by Democrats there. I actually should say Illinois, New York's was thrown out. But Illinois' map, that was drawn to give Democrats an advantage. If Democrats control both houses of legislature and the governor's office in Illinois. It's, it's what partisans do given a partisan opportunity. Yeah, but would, would Democrats be threatening impeachment if the tables were turned on this situation, you know, in the, in the state Supreme Court? Good question. Um, I never thought we'd get here, you know, in my conversations with people to be talking about this right now. But that's, it's, it's, a, it's a scenario I can't answer. It's such a hypothetical. Wow, you've given us a lot to think about, JR. And, of course, there's a lot going on in the Capitol. Thanks so much for filling us in, and thanks for joining me on Capitol Notes. Anytime. Thanks. was WUWM's Mayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross of WIS Politics. You can hear Capital Notes every other Monday on Lake Effect. After a long hiatus, Lake Effect is taking the show on the road once again to celebrate another Milwaukee neighborhood. Join us this Wednesday, September 13th at Anodyne Coffee in Walkers Point for a live taping of the show. Tickets are free, but reservations are suggested. Check out wuwm.com for more information. What's that sound? In about 10 minutes, we'll bring you a new episode of our series, Sounds Like Milwaukee, where residents share the sounds they love in our community. One thing I always do is tell them to put on their deer ears. You know what deer ears are? What are deer ears? Uh, You cup your hands behind your ears like this, and you can double the amount of things you hear. But first, what to do about the Mitchell Park domes has been an ongoing question for years. We'll learn about the next steps for that plan next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. The preservation of the Mitchell Park domes has been an ongoing debate for years. A small piece of concrete that fell from within one of the three glass structures in 2016 set off a lot of things. Concern, temporary closure, 
consternation, but there still isn't a plan on what to do about these iconic structures. Tomorrow, a Milwaukee County committee will take up the issue. WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz talks with Dome's advocates, along with county park staff, who will be at tomorrow's meeting. We'll hear first from Bill Lynch, the former chair of the Dome's task force. So, Bill, you chaired the committee as a volunteer. Can you tell us a couple of ideas or initiatives that the task force reviewed that you feel should be considered as as we consider the future of the domes? Well, we learned that uh, for the domes to be successful, uh, there has to be additional investment in the park and the domes beyond what beyond just repairing the structures themselves. That's in order to increase the number of visits by people for longer times and, and, and the number of visitors. The, th- those are the main criteria, it seems to me, in evaluating a plan. We learned that in order to do that, it was necessary to change the dome's present operations to make them more, more uh, extensive and more attractive and more beneficial to the community. Uh, so we were looking very much at what could be done that hasn't been done traditionally at the domes. And Emma, fill us in on the discussions that have gone and, and the involvement of the National Trust for Historic Places. Can you talk a bit about what the trust had to say and what the potential might be to the future of the domes? The National Trust for Historic Preservation has been a great ally with the domes. They did list the domes on the 11 most endangered list, which is a national list that features, you know, a building that is under current threat that is a historic icon. And they've also been very involved with just kind of getting the word out to the community, you know, supporting the domes, making sure that people are aware that this historic building is at risk. It has been neglected and it does need a lot of upkeep to get it back to where it was. They've also been just really supporting kind of the message of the domes. You know, I think a lot of people see the domes, but they don't actually know the history of it. They're not aware that it was, you know, originally designed for a contest, that Lady Bird Johnson was the one who inaugurated the domes. So I think there's a lot of those kind of historical details that get lost in the story that they're really trying to kind of bring back to the forefront and, you know, make people aware of how valuable these domes are to our community outside of just the cool architectural features that they have. One of the topics that I believe came up in more recent months, what could it mean if the domes were designated as a historic site? Would that be a benefit to the future of the domes or would it limit what could be done there? Would there be directives from such a designation that would be burdensome for Milwaukee County or Milwaukee to carry out? So historic preservation, when you designate a property, people can look at it both ways. So with designation, you have an opportunity for the historic tax credit program, which is essentially at this point, I believe it's 20% matching at state level and federal level. So up to 40% benefits in tax credits that are returned to the project. So as a funding source, it's outstanding. They're there to help these projects get done. They're there to preserve the culture of this country. That's why this program was created. But on the flip side of that, there are those that look at it as a hindrance, because when you do designate a property, you now have to follow a set of rules that are called the Secretary of Interior Standards. 
and those are for materials, those are for, you know, how you're replacing things, and there's really this long oversight process that you have to go through. Um, in our instance, we would go through the State Historic Preservation Office out of Madison, but then again, on the flip side of that, they're there to kind of guide you through that process and make sure that the work you're doing follows those standards and is also beneficial to the finality of the project. There's not as much oversight on what goes on on the inside of the structures. There's definitely consideration for it, but at the national level, they're primarily concerned with just kind of maintaining the form and function of the original structure. My colleague Lena Tren recently talked with a resident who lived in the park neighborhood who is a person who happened to experience domestic abuse and shared the story of how much the domes and spending time there meant to her healing. I'm guessing that some or all of you have heard stories of people for whom the domes and their, where they are in our community. They're in a densely populated, lower income area where there's not a whole lot of green space. I mean, this, it is an oasis. Any thoughts or observations from what you've heard? It really makes it real when we say things like access to nature and access to plants improves people's health, their mental health, their physical well-being. And in the case of that, that one individual, your ability to be resilient and recover, um, which is so important when you think about where the domes are located, right in the middle of the city, um, the ability to access plants from throughout the world and have a, an experience where you're not just interacting with the typical um, species you would see in any other park in Wisconsin. It really is that much more of a special experience. But there are all sorts of studies and reports that we point to that show access to nature is really beneficial to people. And it's something that we need more and more. Um, it's a non-medicated way of having stress relief and improving your mental health and that. And, and increasingly, we're hearing individual stories from people coming forward expressing that is why the domes are important to them. That was Jim Tarantino. The task force um, received concerns from the VA hospital, which is nearby, and from the medical college, uh, especially their public health people, uh, about uh, wanting Mitchell Park and the domes to be a, more of an integral part of the health and wellness efforts of the community and the county. Uh, there's such a potential for both the indoor environment and the outdoor environment to pick up on this development of therapeutic horticulture. The other great thing about that kind of a partnership would be that those other uh, government and private entities might be willing to contribute to the capital costs and the operational costs of having the Mitchell Park and the Domes a uh, a resource and a place where both individuals and groups could uh, benefit from the therapeutic value. Uh, and I, I hope that the report that we get on Tuesday will discuss the importance of uh, that, that possible development to the future of the domes. To Bill's point, we also recognize there could be some importance in having some gardens outside. And we know that back in the day, we had the sunken gardens but maybe it could be a children's garden, or maybe we could have some additional uh, spaces out there that are reconnecting people to that park from the neighborhood around it. And so I think there's um, a lot of value uh, to that. And I, I think there's uh, various partnerships that, um, based on you know the task force study, 
um, that still are relevant to the discussion today. Beyond this meeting on the 12th, what can the public expect? Will that involve public input? I mean, having meetings and the opportunity for people to weigh in early on and not at the end of a process? My answer is yes. Feel free to jump in, Jim. There are a number of improvements that have been looked at and recommended as part of the conservatory, the domes, presence in the park, but we want to make sure that these are things that the neighborhood actually wants. So that to answer your question, where does it go from here? Nobody wants to hear that there's going to be more years of planning. Hopefully this doesn't take more years, but planning is the right vehicle to do engagement and vet these ideas with the community, and that's likely the next step is that we're going to continue to do that. The public has not been engaged in the last year. The uh, consultants and studies have been done by the administration, not by the county board members or the with public input, but let's see uh, where we go from here. Bill covered it all. We're aligned in that hope that moving forward now that public is a part of this process and their thoughts are included in the planning and the strategic planning moving forward. And I know Jim can attest to this, but when we were at the the meeting with, with Supervisor Martinez, that was a lot of what we heard was, well, what about the rest of the park? And I think that you can't have as Bill said, you can't have the domes without considering the park as well. I'm very optimistic to see a plan that kind of addresses both of those issues moving forward. Emma Rudd is the executive director of the Milwaukee Preservation Alliance. You also heard from Bill Lynch, the former chair of the Domes Task Force, which has disbanded. Jim Tarantino is the deputy director and Guy Smith is the director of Milwaukee County Parks. Susan mentioned WUWM's Lena Tran spoke with a domestic abuse survivor about how the domes helped in her healing journey. You can find that story at WUWM.com. There's an effort underway to restore the green space at Hopkins Hollow. In about 10 minutes, we'll share why one Milwaukee resident wants to preserve that pocket of paradise. But first, many of us recall where we were 22 years ago when we learned of the terrorist attacks in New York and around the country. We'll hear why one Milwaukee resident will never forget that day. Next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. It's been 22 years since the 9-11 terrorist attacks killed almost 3,000 people and injured many more at the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and in Somerset County, Pennsylvania. Most of us look back on that day and remember where we were and what we were doing before news of these events would change the course of history. Lake Effect contributor Bruce Campbell reflects on his experiences that day in this essay, Trying to Remember 9-11. My colleague burst through the door and into the operating room. A plane, a plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. I looked up from where I was standing next to the operating table. My resident and I were concentrating as we worked through an operation to remove the malignant mass from my patient's neck. The surgery had just started, but the scars from another surgeon's biopsy made the initial steps of the dissection tricky. What? A plane. 
I was in the OR lounge and the news switched to New York. A plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. I stared at him. I rechecked the surgical field and put pressure on the wound. So what are they saying? What's going on? They don't know. My God, it's awful. He left and we went back to work. The resident and I teased out the anatomy, peeling the skin away from the underlying muscles, finding the jugular vein, and preserving the nerves to the tongue and to the shoulder. We dissected the lymph nodes away from the surrounding tissues deep in the wound. The door opened. Another plane. This one crashed into the other tower. What? They're replaying the videos over and over. The first tower is on fire, and then there's this other plane. He ran out again. We lifted out some of the nodes, clearing them away from the carotid artery. By placing my fingers lightly on the carotid, I could feel the patient's blood flowing from his heart to his brain. The door opened. Bush was just on TV. He says it's terrorists. I closed my eyes. Please stop. Please don't come in with any more news reports. He paused. Okay, sure. And he left. We wrapped up the surgery, tying off a few small blood vessels and closing the wound. It was deadly quiet. None of us in the room had any idea what was going on, but we sensed it was bad. I lingered as the patient woke up. We wheeled him to the recovery room. Someone stopped me in the hallway. The first tower collapsed. I went to the lounge to watch with the others, then walked down to the family center to talk to my patient's wife. She was watching the news along with everyone else. We stepped into a private consultation room so I could review her husband's surgery. We returned to the waiting area together, where I stared at the television with her for a few minutes. The scenes of smoke billowing from the towers and the slow-motion impact of the second plane were playing over and over. Everyone in the hospital looked dazed. News reports flashed about a plane crashing into the Pentagon. Another plane had reportedly crashed in Pennsylvania. I wondered, were any of my New York friends killed? Would New York and Washington, D.C. hospitals be overwhelmed? Many of my partners were at a meeting in Denver. Were they okay? The airports are closed. How would they get home? Were more attacks imminent? Were we all in danger? I walked back to the recovery room where my patient was waking up. I told him that the surgery had gone well. He smiled and dozed. He had gone to sleep in one world and awakened in another. Despite humankind's overwhelming capacity for kindness and compassion, we also seem bent on senseless, self-inflicted tragedy. The numbers of people killed during wars and atrocities are incomprehensible. 450,000 died in the American Civil War. Approximately 85 million died over the course of World War II including the single-day death tolls of 1,177 at Pearl Harbor, 145,000 at Dresden, and 60,000 at Hiroshima. Millions have died in wars about which we never even studied in school. The death tolls from slavery, racism, and brutality cannot even be measured. Survivors beg us to remember their stories, but voices soon fade. 19th century Americans were exhorted to remember the Alamo and remember the Maine as the country waged wars with Mexico and Spain. The survivors of those cataclysmic events and many others are long gone. Their appeals fail to stir us. After each moment of outrage, our collective and personal sense of innocence and the illusion of normalcy returns. 
our hands return to our daily tasks, we turn away and forget. Still, I was shaken hard that morning. I will never understand why 3,000 people were killed that day in New York, at the Pentagon, and in the farm field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I mourn the hundreds of first responders and cleanup workers who were sickened or died. I despair at the subsequent thousands of dead civilians and soldiers and the millions of refugees. The gnawing emptiness in my gut during the weeks that followed mirrored the emptiness of the skies devoid of planes. Yet, the aftershocks faded. Soon, even when I tried, I could no longer evoke the depths of despair that were once so real. For several years, the patient on whom I operated the morning the towers fell continued to come for follow-up visits. I was happy to see him. I would examine his neck and make certain his cancer had been controlled. We always spent part of the appointment reliving our shared, indelible experience. Do you remember, we would ask each other. Yes, I do, we would respond. Eventually, though, there was no need for him to return. No more annual visits. Let me know if things change, I said. He shook my hand. I won't forget that day, he said. Me either, I replied. Yet, I know now, I had already begun the process of forgetting. The fading passion, I am certain, protects us from being locked into permanent states of grief and anger. 9-11, as well as all of the shocking events that have rocked our recent national history, arouse outrage and grief. They evoke powerful emotions and calls to action New leaders rise and inspire us to be part of the change. The events and names remain alive only if we amplify the stories. We pledge to stay engaged. 9-11 remains one of my communal where-were-you moments. Most of our current medical students with whom I work were in grade school the days the attack occurred. The act of telling this story again is my way of keeping a memory of that day and the passions that it engendered in me alive. Bruce Campbell is a head and neck surgeon at Frederick Hospital and the Medical College of Wisconsin. He's also a member of WUWM's advisory board. Editorial decisions are independent of that board. UWM is collecting your favorite sounds for a series called Sounds Like Milwaukee. WUWM's Lena Tran brings us the latest episode from a hidden green space in Milwaukee. Today's Sounds Like Milwaukee update comes from Hopkins Hollow, a lush oasis on the city's northwest side, tucked behind Hopkins and 35th. That's where I meet David Thomas, a project coordinator with Nearby Nature Milwaukee. The environmental justice group is restoring this green space in a part of the city that lacks them, and they're bringing black Milwaukeeans here to enjoy it. It's a project in partnership with the Nature Conservancy and the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewerage District. We're hiking along Lincoln Creek. Well, this has always been a creek, but in the 1950s, the engineers thought that the best way to move the floodwaters would be through a concrete channel. But it didn't turn out to work very well. It looked like an open sewer, and people treated it that way. Now, Nearby Nature is restoring the land around Lincoln Creek, 
back to prairie and oak savanna. There's a trail in the works for people in the neighborhood to enjoy. Volunteers are also putting native plants back on the landscape. It slows the water as it flows to the creek. So if there's heavy rains, the waters aren't going to rise as quickly and aren't going to back up in people's basements quite as much. But we're here for Thomas to share his favorite sound. We wind our way down toward the creek and then back up a small hill. Can you hear the creek? Nearby nature brings volunteers here to work on the trail and school kids to learn what plants and critters also call Milwaukee home. One thing I always do is tell them to put on their deer ears. Do you know what deer ears are? What are deer ears? Uh, you cup your hands behind your ears like this and you can double the amount of things you hear. So deers move their ears around to point at the sound. So you point your ears. And you can hear that sound. You can see the waterfall about uh, 60 feet away, coming down the side of the hill. So let's walk down there. It's a small waterfall, not the kind of thing people hike up mountains for, but it's an unexpected delight, a stone's throw from the roar of traffic on Congress and Hopkins. They call it a pocket paradise. It's not quite so small you could put it in your pocket, but it's, uh, it's just a small isolated area separated from the rest of the city where you can get away. And it's kind of special. And, and a paradise because you could close your eyes and think, well, I'm back in the Garden of Eden. It's just very peaceful here. We want to hear your favorite sounds. Visit wuwm.com for instructions on participating in this project, Sounds Like Milwaukee. Lena Tran, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. That Sounds Like Milwaukee wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. And don't forget to get your tickets to Lake Effect on-site. Join us for a live taping of the show this Wednesday, September 13th at Anodyne Coffee in Walkers Point. Tickets are free and you can check out wuwm.com for more information. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn more about Golda Meir and how her life in Milwaukee impacted her beliefs and political career in Israel. We'll also learn about a central city garden on housing authority land that helps residents nurture their roots. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. PR.